everyone, and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Rorkraut. And today we're celebrating the 75th anniversary of possibly the most iconic Christmas movie of all time, It's a Wonderful Life. We discussed Frank Capra's career earlier this year, talking about three of his other films, but we didn't really get to discuss It's a Wonderful Life, mainly because this went home empty-handed at the Oscars, but I'm so excited to talk about it with you today. And we also have a special guest. You might remember her from our holiday movie draft last year. It is my sister, Isabel Simonello. Isabel, welcome to the pod. Hi, thank you so much for having me back. Much like Mariah Carey and Michael Buble, I only exist in the month of December, (laughs) so I'm happy to be here again. Welcome, Isabel. I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad we waited to talk about this. We can discuss how this fits into Frank Capra's filmography and Jimmy Stewart's for that matter, but I really love this movie. It's number one on almost every best Christmas holiday movie list. I don't know. Do you guys agree with that being at number one? I definitely do. It's one that we watch every year. We always watch it on Christmas Eve. And I was telling Sophia earlier, I think it's probably the most referenced Christmas movie. I can think of just off the top of my head, at least five other Christmas movies it appears in. And I think that's kind of a testament to its legacy. I agree. I think it has like all of the sentimentality of your favorite 40s movies like it makes you want to tell all of the people closest to you that you love them which is like such a warm feeling right at Christmas time but it also has Jimmy Stewart in what I think is his career best performance and I think similarly to what you said Isabel it's just like it's impossible I feel like almost to watch another holiday movie that doesn't reference this or doesn't feel like it's taken something from this yeah the entire vibe of the movie it's so caring George is so selfless, and I think, especially during Christmas, a lot of people are giving back and are thinking about what they're thankful for, and that is entirely what this movie is about. It's about putting yourself in George's shoes and understanding how he feels and how he gives up everything for his community and for his family, and when he's at the breaking point, you know, we've all been there, be it in the crazy times in the holidays, be it this past year. And it really got to me this viewing. The tears were just flowing at the end. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny because it's not really a Christmas movie until it becomes one in the second half, right? The first half of this movie is this like small town Americana tale about bettering your community and being selfless and giving up your dreams, right, to take care of other people, whether that's what you want to do or not, right? And it spans pretty much the time from the Spanish flu, World War One, all the way up to World War Two. So it is this very American film, which is something we talked about in our Capra episode about how he loved to make these movies about the American dream. And this fits so nicely into that. And I love how he uses Christmas Eve, which is a perfect day for all of this to happen, right? It, of course, calls back to A Christmas Carol, which this is loosely based on, but also just that feeling of anticipation that's there. We're getting ahead of ourselves here a little bit. 
Description here, a holiday favorite for generations, George Bailey has spent his entire life giving to the people of Bedford Falls. All that prevents rich skinflint Mr. Potter from taking over the entire town is George's modest building and loan company. But on Christmas Eve, the business's $8,000 is lost and George's troubles begin. All because of a really annoying character that we will get to. This movie, of course, is directed by Frank Capra. It's based on the 1943 short story and booklet called The Greatest Gift by Philip Van Doren Stern, loosely based on A Christmas Carol. It stars James Stewart, Donna Reed, Lionel Barrymore, Beulah Bondi, Gloria Graham, and more. It was a box office flop. It made $3.3 million on a $3.1 million budget. I always kind of laugh when I hear that because now it's such a classic but back then doomsday scenario for Capra really so has it mostly been making money like just playing on repeat in syndication I think so I mean I know it reached popularity again when it became a part of the public domain Mm -hmm. that was like when people started paying attention to it like over generations but I'm sure you know now it's like it's playing at IFC here in New York right now I know it's always a part of repertory screenings every Christmas. It's always on TV. But back then it was like nothing, even though it did get five Oscar nominations. Yeah, kind of wild that one, it's Frank Capra. Two, it had to gross over six million just to make even, and it couldn't do that. And two, that it wasn't really recognized until 30 years later when people would watch it on TV. And I was reading this article earlier about a lot of Christmas movies that end up doing pretty poorly at the box office or that aren't really recognized until years later. So I guess it's just a part of that bundle and I'm glad we have it today. And it is something I try to rewatch every year. I watched the last like 20 minutes with Sophia just because I was getting home from work and I just started crying. (laughs) Like I can pick it up at any point and I I still am just like very moved by it. And that was going to be one of my other questions or points is that I feel like this is a harder Christmas movie to just put on in the background because of kind of what you're saying, Sophia, of the first half being this just normal drama about Mm -hmm. a family. Whereas I feel like Home Alone or The Grinch or Elf, something that is overly spirited can be easy to put in the background and you just kind of don't really have to watch because I feel like It's a Wonderful Life has a lot that you have to dissect and understand Or just that the screenplay is pretty good and there's a lot to it. So if you're not watching and taking it all in, you could miss a lot and then later on just be like, I don't know what's happening. I do really love the screenplay. I think it's kind of crazy that it's as long as it is. It's 131 minutes, which is a pretty long runtime. And it kind of feels like two different movies if you think about it but it just flies by for me i genuinely don't know if i like the first half or the second half more i love the first half of this movie like i love when george is a little kid and he meets a young violet and mary like when he's working at mr gowers and then you know he grows up to become george bailey as we know him as jimmy stewart Like we get the scene at the high school dance and him meeting Mary and Donna Reed and Jimmy Stewart just have like electric chemistry. It's incredible. I love like that whole relationship building up. Like when she's on the phone with Sam, Mm -hmm. we'll obviously talk about this more, but I don't love it as much. This might be controversial. I do. I mean, I obviously still love it, but 
The parts with Clarence are so dark that I don't like those as much, but I love the ending, if that makes sense. So I do prefer the first half of the movie. It's so interesting, too, because I really don't typically like exposition-heavy movies. Like, I just don't need a whole lot of things explained to me. Like, I like to kind of, you know, make my own opinions and piece things together by myself. But I think that the first half does such a great job just laying the groundwork and, like, seeing how much of an impact George Bailey has on, like, the lives of literally everybody around him that you need all of it. And it just, it works really well with the latter half. Yeah. And I guess, like, I don't think it's heavy-handed. I mean, it is so exposition-heavy, but, like, the way that they lay it out is pretty brilliant because it's, like, you just see George doing all these selfless things, like, Mm -hmm. giving up his college experience, giving up traveling the world all for his his yeah his honeymoon like all for these people and all those characters do come back whether or not that's realistic or not like the impact he had i don't really care that's not really the point of this movie to me like it can be as sentimental as it wants to be because it works on me well i think that's why the idea was so brilliant of that original short story is because or unless you know, you've seen this movie a hundred times like we have, but <laughs> you don't really see until Clarence comes in the picture later on that all of these things that George has done throughout his life actually account to a lot more than he assumed they did. And that also holds some of the power in this type of story and how it's told. And when it comes around and this really becomes a ghost of Christmas past character i don't know why but i i really enjoyed it and i think it was in a genius way of reforming this idea that had been done before i completely agree first i think does like the framing device or like the opening of george as a kid work for you do you need that or would you rather like just jump into george as an adult it really works for me I like it so much because, I mean, it's called It's a Wonderful Life, so I think that we need to get as much information about George as we can. We need to see who he is as a child so that we understand him more as an adult, and we can see just how selfless he is from the very beginning of his life and how that continues on. He's also just such a cute little kid. I love the actor that plays him. I agree. I think it kind of surprises me when I see it that it's a story told entirely in flashback. I love the image of the stars and Clarence whizzing in. Again, I don't know why. It just kind of feels spirited and holiday-like to me. But I love that we go all the way back to him as a kid because that's when Harry comes into the picture and it's that first moment where like, okay, George is a good man, a good selfless man. And it jumps pretty quickly into the Jimmy Stewart version of George. And I think Mm -hmm. that the passage of time works really well. I don't really have any bad things to say about this movie. (laughs) I know. I was just kind of thinking that. I was like, this is a no-notes movie for me. Like, I'm just (laughs) posing these questions just to see, like, if there's something we would change. But really, it works for me, too. It's like, we're not getting this, like, cradle-to-grave story. We're, We're getting a snapshot of it. Like you said, we're not spending too much time there. But I also think it drives home the point that Mary, George, Violet, like these people have been in Bedford Falls forever. 
Like, they've been in this small town for so long, and, like, it is so much a part of them. And I think, like, seeing them as kids there really, really helps with that. Plus, now, anytime I see coconut, I really, in my head, think, say brainless. You don't like coconuts. Amazing. (laughs) Yeah, that whole idea of not leaving this small town that you grew up in is terrifying. And back to your no notes comment, this will be a shock to everybody who listened to our Capra episode where I had some (laughs) not so nice things to say. (laughs) But I think all of Capra's isms here work well. I also want to talk quickly about when George and Mary meet because this is another scene that we think of when we think of this movie and the terrifying pool in the floor in the gym. This is so scary to me that just a floor, like a basketball court, would open up and become a pool. No thank you. (laughs) It really works as a set piece. They're already so into each other that they don't notice that the literal floor is falling Mm -hmm. out underneath them. I also just love everyone else's like terrified like cheering and they just think that they're just like rooting them on in this Charleston contest and it's like yes they are but also like look below. He's like hey we're pretty good. (laughs) It's like uh. (laughs) I'm pretty sure this is a direct reference to Chaplin but I think the slapstick of it really works. It feels old timey but every time I watch it I get so excited by it and then when they eventually do fall in and everyone jumps in after them I think it's adorable i also love how they keep dancing like once they're already in the water he just like (laughs) keeps going it's so cute Mm -hmm. and then of course afterwards mary one being in a robe in a 46 movie is scandalous and i love it but when they're you know walking by that old house and you can tell that she just has this very different idea of bedford falls right like even though she's just graduating from high school also, they look so old, which is so funny, but it doesn't oh God, really bother me. Oh, this is high school. Me. Yeah. <laughs> she just graduated. And same with Harry. Another great moment in this movie, right, is George saying he'll give Mary the moon. Incredibly romantic. Donna Reed actually broke the window. She used to be a mm-hmm. baseball player. Love that she did that on her own. It was not a stunt double. It was not some man throwing the rock behind her. It was actually her, which is cool. Well, they were ready to break the window. They had a sharpshooter or something on set. But then when she broke it, everyone was so surprised. That's Mary Bailey. Which I think this is the only Donna Reed film or show I've seen. But I think she's gorgeous. I do believe in their relationship when they're young and as a family really well. So the fact that this is her first feature film is pretty amazing. How does this compare to the rest of her work? Donna Reed isn't that high up on my list, really, of actresses from that period who I'm, like, really familiar with or whose work I watch nonstop. And that's probably because I really just think of her as Mary Bailey. Like, that's not a bad thing. It's just, like, it's how I view her. But I think this is her best performance for sure. It's definitely what she's known for. And I'm like, did you love Jimmy Stewart in real life? Because this is like really, really convincing. Just how she looks at him. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're not getting that from like Greer Garson and Walter Pidgeon and Mrs. Miniver. Even Myrna Loy and Frederick March in the best years of our lives. Like this Mm -hmm. is so different. They really do have such great chemistry. I love the scene when he comes home late from work and she's telling him that she's pregnant and she's like i want my baby to look like you when he's like why would you marry a man like me you could have had sam wainwright and i love of course right how like mary and george like they 
lose each other for a little bit, not in a bad way. It's just like growing up. But I love that he, of course, becomes stuck in Bedford Falls, like with the family business after his father dies and Harry kind of gets to have the life that he wants. Harry is also really annoying to me. He goes through life and is just like, surprise, I'm married. Surprise, I have a new job. I got to do all of these things and I didn't really run it by you. I, I'm just living mm-hmm. my life without consideration for others. I do love when Mary and George get back together and she draws the like George lassos the moon thing for him. And mm-hmm. she has this whole plan. It almost seems like to get him back. Apparently, I read too that Jimmy Stewart was like really nervous about kissing her on camera because it was his first movie back after the war. But it was so intense that this they had to cut some of it so it could get past the censors. Those censors were <laughs> well at work then. I love how her mom's eavesdropping and she's like, Sam Wainwright's mm-hmm. on the phone, Mary. And she goes, he's making violent love to me, mother. <laughs> <laughs> and the mom is just so upset because she wants her to marry a rich guy, mm-hmm. which is just so fun. That's so good. But again, there's another point of, you know, the one that got away, they each had their own lives and they were meant to be together just as Mary coming home. And I think that functions as this like happy, idyllic American family too. I love how Mary does keep Sam Wainwright in her corner though, the whole time in her life. He's just kind of there in the background, still probably loves her. Um, And she obviously uses that to her advantage in the end, which is just great. Inspirational. (laughs) We talked a little bit about like the passage of time, but it really like all of a sudden I was telling Isabel this, like, once Mary has a baby, it's like boom, boom, boom. Like it's the war. And then we're at the ending, like the last half of the movie, which I think works for me fine. It's like, I don't need somehow like all of that time in the middle. Like we don't need to know more because Mm -hmm. at that point, I think too, we can already feel that George feels, even though he loves Mary and he loves his family, he is so trapped and stagnant there. So I don't think we necessarily need more. Yeah, we just we slowly see him becoming ingrained in this town. And I think part of it is in his physical appearance, you know, makeup wise, he comes home, his eyes are sunken. But then also in the story where this is all he's doing and eventually in the end it wears at him. And I think that's what's so hard about when he screams at his family is that you can feel this broiling tension and you know it's going to come out and you don't don't want to see it happen. When all of this starts, really, is when they get married and they're about to go on this honeymoon and the banks close and they can't go. There's a really cool shot I really liked from inside the house when we see them come down the stairs after they're married. And it's a crane shot and it moves from inside to outside and above the crowd. I think that's some of Capra. It reminds me of Weiler a lot Mm -hmm. of this really old time filmmaking And it makes the filmmaking seem very seamless. Well, it's interesting you bring up Weiler, too, because we'll get to him more at the Oscars. But, you know, this movie was part of an RKO contract, but also Liberty Films, which ended up kind of falling apart, right? This was one of two movies made with Liberty Films, but it was this, like, independent company where George Stevens and William Weiler were also involved with Capra. And, like, those... Three directors, I think, really are people that you think of when you think of these kind of brutal stories underneath a layer of Norman Rockwell type imagery of America or of Britain Mm -hmm. in Weiler's case sometimes. Um, So I really like that connection. I think that works really well. I do think this movie is a lot darker underneath it than Capra's other movies. I think it's warm. 
for sure, especially at the end and everything. But it it does take a really dark turn for me. And part of that, I think, is when George wants to stop living, then we go through the what could have been or, you know, what would life be like without him moments. It almost feels like this guy that he was, right? This nice, friendly person. There was something like sinister bubbling underneath that he feel he felt like he could never express or like really get out because he was always living for other people. Maybe that's me reading a lot into it, but I I do feel that from him that he was like really struggling in this way of life in America at the time people like couldn't and still to this day sometimes like feel that they can't express how they really feel. It's just keeping up appearances to help others. One of the first lines of dialogue in the movie is Joseph asking Clarence to help George. And he says, oh, great. Is he sick? And he's like, no, worse. He's discouraged. And I think that kind of sums up what you were saying. Yeah, I love that beginning. It's a lot of exposition, but it's also really succinct where we understand why we go back really quickly and we start to understand the story. And that line in starting all of this is really, really profound. I agree, Isabel. That is a good line. I think we need to talk about Mr. Potter, who really like kicks all of this off for George, who says like, you're worth more dead than you are alive. And so in a way, in George's mind, right, he sees that as it would be better for everyone if I was gone and that's how he's always right lived his life what would be better for everyone else what can I do that would help the most people um, but Potter great villain played by Lionel Barrymore just excellent work there love the performance and love how deliciously evil he is in this movie I mean he's like the the big bank capitalist right it's a I mean a perfect villain for the time period too mm-hmm. He really is so evil and there are so many good details to just like capture how he's just like a very oppressive presence in the town and just like the way his chair is so much higher off the ground than George. So when George Mm -hmm. sits and meets with him, he's physically below him. There are just so many good little details and I'm sure that's Potter's like intent when people walk into his office, but it's also just a good visual aid for us to see the actual power imbalance between the two. And with Potter too, I mean, George is the only person who's really in his way and it's because he won't conform, like he won't follow his lead. He will continue to do what he wants to do. And he's the only person really in Bedford Falls who won't fall in line. And I think this is most obvious when he, of course, like early in the movie wants to shutter um, the building in loan when Peter Bailey dies. But later when he offers him a job, when he offers him that salary and, you know, he offers him a salary of $20,000, which today doesn't sound like anything, but Back then, that was a $285,000 salary, and he turned it down because he couldn't be with him. And that's gold. Like, if you put it in that in today's terms, I don't know. I might have taken the money. That is a tough decision. Do you remember, I thought it was a new movie, but it might have just been Capra's, when they're trying to get rid of somebody who owns a block in the middle of some big square. They own, like, a lot of land Oh, yeah. It's in um, Wait, You Can't new? Take It With You. It's the house. That's what I thought. Okay. Which Lionel Barrymore is in that movie. Remember? I remember. That's my <laughs> least favorite of the three that we talked about. <laughs> but that's the exact same concept, which mm-hmm. is fine that he reused in a, in a way, but... 
Well, it's funny when you think about it, too. Like, George, he works for a bank. Like, he's a banker, too. It's just mm-hmm. different. It's like Capra, the way he sees, like, American life is so interesting to me. Like, it's so of that time, right? Because today, that would never fly. I feel like audiences would have such a hard time seeing, like, a good banker and a bad banker as being your hero and your villain. Well, he still owns Bailey Park. Like, people own houses in his namesake area. So, yeah, I mean, he's giving loans to people on way less credit than normal banks would or what you see in Mm -hmm. other depictions in movies. And that is why he's this family man. But, yeah, he is still doing what Potter's doing, in a sense, just with a nicer face on. And him keeping the money... The $8,000. I mean, seeing that scene play out was so cringe inside for me. Like, you know it's going to happen. And you just want to scream at Uncle Billy. And he's an idiot for not remembering flicking through the money at the stand at the bank. Like, we just saw you do this. How did you think you dropped it outside? But the fact that Potter never gives the money back, I think, one, drives home how much of a scoundrel he is and corporate America and capitalism, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it also makes George's success and the community backing him so much more emotional and heartfelt. One of my favorite things about this movie is that they don't redeem Potter. You know, Potter doesn't come to the Bailey house at the end with the money. Like he doesn't realize that what he's done all his life is bad. Like he's just a straight up evil man. He keeps Mm -hmm. the money. He doesn't get caught as far as we know. It doesn't matter to him, right? And again, a little conversion here with the money and how much money they lost. (laughs) It was just going to, oh my God, it's like 80 plus thousand. (laughs) $114,029.95 would be today's money. That's how much that was that they lost. The worst character in the entire movie, Uncle Billy, misplaced. I could go on and on about this character and how much I hate him and how he literally has... I feel like, does he have remorse? Like, he should be the fall guy. He should be the Tom Wong. He should be on the bridge, He should go to jail. (laughs) Yeah, he's arguably as big of a villain as Potter, I think. (laughs) Because he doesn't know, you know, like, he's not aware of his impact like he is ruining george at least potter is like a smart guy at least he i mean he's evil but like uncle billy's just bumbling through life with his pet squirrel like i don't are you kidding me and the little like whatever yarn around his fingers of things that he can't remember i'm like i don't know how that's supposed to remind you of anything but oh my god i can't i can't do it it's crazy I do relate to him, though, when he says his three favorite sounds of the world are like breakfast is served, lunch is served, dinner is served. (laughs) Uncle Billy is a Taurus, for sure. You think he's a Taurus, Uncle Billy? Oh, that would make sense. We we can leave astrology out of this, but for any astrology (laughs) listeners, I think that George would be a Pisces with a Virgo moon. Anyway. (laughs) So I think before we talk about the ending, like, let's talk about George Originally, when this was like an RKO idea, the role was initially for Cary Grant. Can you see, one, anyone other than Jimmy Stewart in this part, which Capra did rewrite a bit for Stewart? Yeah, can you see anyone else? Can you see Cary Grant? Can you see Henry Fonda, who was also considered? I truthfully can't see anyone other than Jimmy Stewart. I think that 
Jimmy Stewart works so well because he is just kind of an inherently warm person. He is someone that you want to root for. Even if you're frustrated by George and the decisions he's making or the things he's saying to Mary, he you still always kind of root for him and empathize with him. And I think that's a testament to Jimmy Stewart's character or his acting ability. I love Cary Grant. I think that he is, you know, one of the most handsome actors of this time, but I don't see him making his character quite as likable. Yeah, I can't see anyone else playing this role either. I think maybe it's his best performance. And up to this point, he had been establishing himself as this ideal American man. And throughout his acting career, I think this is the culmination of what he had been portraying in films is as this ideal American man. I really, I couldn't see Cary Grant. I couldn't see Clark Gable. I couldn't see any of Capra's other leading men in here. And it brings to mind other performances that he's done, like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington or The Philadelphia Story. Performances where he can be very dramatic, but also emotional and play big or really small in these extreme close-ups. There was a shot when George is crying at the bar Jimmy Stewart just totally broke down and Capra loved it so much that he just blew up that shot to be an extreme close up. And it ends up being really grainy because it's zoomed in. And this is the only shot in the movie to look that way. And that's why. I did notice that actually on this rewatch. I think that's like a mark of a classic when you can notice something different every time you watch the movie. And I did notice that and it's like, ooh, that's interesting. That's definitely on purpose. Love that. As far as Cary Grant goes, I actually think Cary Grant is too likable. I think that, like, Cary Grant is so beautiful. Like, he's so handsome and charming. In a way, he actually looks a lot like Todd Carnes, who plays Harry Bailey. Like, they could Mm. very realistically play brothers. But I do think you need a bit of a difference there in looks because George is such an older brother. Like he's taller, he's lankier, he really fits that description when they say that he was born old. Like he just seems like this old soul. And Cary Grant is not an everyman. Anyone watching would love to put themselves in Cary Grant's shoes for a day. But it's just not a realistic experience because he's a gorgeous man. And not that Jimmy Stewart, you know, is ugly or anything. He's not. But he just, he's so much more relatable. I could see Henry Fonda if I had to pick anyone else. I think he could have done it. Um, thinking of him in 12 Angry Men. But I do think that Jimmy Stewart's perfect here. And I, I agree. I think it's his best performance. It's just like stunning. And we talked a bit about Donna Reed, but Jean Arthur was one of the names here. She was in a lot of Capra films. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, which we talked about. Could you see her in this part? I just can't imagine anyone else. Mm -hmm. I feel like I've seen it so many times. She's, this is kind of my only connection to Donna Reed, I guess. I'm just not as familiar with the rest of her filmography. I mean, I'd be curious to see someone else in the role. I just, I really do love her as Mary so much. Yeah, I'm not sure Jean Arthur works in this part. You want someone who feels homey in a way. And I feel like her role in Mr. Deeds Goes to Town was a bit flashier. And I love that this is kind of subdued, like, Mary is a stay-at-home mom, and I feel like if you had someone like Jean Arthur, who looks really polished, it would give like a Stepford Wives, Real Housewives kind of feel to it. I really love Jean Arthur. She's one of my favorites from like the 30s, from that period, but I think it's 
essential that Mary's a brunette. That's like weird to say, but mm-hmm. it just that I feels right. That like especially in contrast to the iconic Gloria Graham as Violet Bick, which I can't wait to talk about her. She is a very good foil for Violet, like you were saying, mm-hmm. just like looks wise. Are you a Violet or a Mary? I'm a Mary for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You're like I'm a Violet. I am a Violet. Well, I think to that point, you couldn't switch Gloria Graham and Donna Reed. Mm-mm. It wouldn't work. And I think for whatever reason, being a blonde versus a brunette is like a part of that. Definitely. Let's talk about Gloria Graham as Viola Bick. I think she's my favorite part of the movie besides George. She really is so good from the jump. Like even little baby Violet in the beginning when they're visiting George at work and she's like, you like every boy. What's wrong with that? It's so good. She Mm -hmm. knows who she is. She owns it. It's also so relatable when, you know, she's always around all these guys and they always want to take her out and she would go out with George and he wants her to like take off her shoes and walk in the grass in her bare feet and she like freaks out about that that is so relatable every guy today who wants to tell you they love hiking it's just like shut up no <laughs> i love violet and gloria graham i mean amazing right she's in so many movies that i love and it's just funny that i saw her first in it's a wonderful life because i watched it as a kid so then seeing her you know opposite bogart in a lonely place really a noir queen And I was shocked to learn that about her, I think, later when I became more interested in classic film. What I like about her character in the story is that in trying to bring George down, Potter spits out that, you know, people around town know that you give her money and they see you around with her. And there's the scene in the Bailey building and loan where he has that kiss on his cheek and the rest of his staff Mm -hmm. sees him wiping it off. But that never becomes a big plot point or that like Mary is disgusted and finds out and thinks he's cheating on her. Like, I feel like the movie just would have went off the rails if it had Mm -hmm. gone down that road. So I'm happy how it kind of leans into it, but doesn't go there fully. I agree. In a similar way to a lot of the characters in the movie, like she's just trying to like find her identity in Bedford Falls. And she she very much, I think, is an example of how you can feel really trapped right in a small town. Like she doesn't belong there. She should be in New York or in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Like that's where she belongs. Vegas, baby. I mean, wherever she wants to go, she should be able to go. But like how stifling a place like Bedford Falls could be to someone like her. Let's talk about Henry Travers, Clarence, the ending. Did Henry Travers look familiar to you, a.k.a. Clarence? Isn't he in Mrs. Miniver? Yes. Yeah, I recognize him. He's in Mrs. Miniver. (laughs) (laughs) He's the one who has the rose that he names Mrs. Miniver. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay. (laughs) Do you like Clarence? Let's start there. I do like Clarence. Clarence is such an underdog character, I think. You know, he is just trying to get his wings. He and George are ultimately helping each other, like, get what they want and come to a realization that they need to a certain extent. I love that he goes to Martini's slash Nick's and wants to order a rum punch. I think he's just, like, an interesting character. (laughs) I don't know. I've I've always liked Clarence. He just seems very eager to help and isn't really sure, like, the best way to do that. But ultimately, obviously, he's successful. I really like how he's this spunky character. He is coming in knowing that George is about to commit suicide and he's determined, like he knows he's capable of changing his mind. 
And when George says, it'd be better if I had never been born, Clarence isn't saddened by that. He's inspired by that. And Mm -hmm. is like, oh, I know what to do. I can get my wings this way. So I really like that he's this light character. Joseph in the beginning says he has the faith of a child. And I like that he's this old man with these childlike characteristics. Yeah, I agree. I think that Clarence is just kind of at first glance, right? Like he's not the angel you would necessarily want helping you. I wouldn't be totally confident that he would be able to get me out of whatever I was dealing with. But this is where my English teacher is going to jump out again. So I think it's funny that Tom Sawyer is the book that's used in the movie that Clarence is reading and that he gives to George at the very end. Because there's a moment in Tom Sawyer when Tom actually sees his own funeral. Like that's a, a part of the book. And I really believe that, right, Clarence is reading this book and he gets the idea from the book and you know mark twain and the adventures of tom sawyer like you can't i mean that is so american classic especially Mm -hmm. at the time like in the 40s where i wonder if audiences could put that together i don't think it would jump out necessarily to today's audiences but that's definitely what i take from it is like clarence is reading this book He's basically watched a biopic of George Bailey's life, and then he gets this idea from the book he's reading, which I think is just so sweet. It's very Mm -hmm. innocent, very childlike. So when we're at the moment when it's like, all right, here it is, like you've never been born. We go through all of those scenes in the movie where it's like seeing life as he's never been born. Like, do you like those moments? They work for you. Is there one that makes you, I think, the most devastated? I think it's frustrating watching him not realize that this is his new reality and he keeps trying to convince more and more people that he is George Bailey but it does get darker and darker as he goes to more and more people I think the hardest realization is when we find out Harry is dead because Mm -hmm. he never saved him but I think the most devastating interaction is when he finds his mother yeah at Ma's boarding house and she doesn't know who he is and he at that moment doesn't have a mother anymore and I think that might have been the last straw where he's like oh my god this is terrible where it started to click for him that a life without him is a total 180 for Bedford Falls. I agree I think that the realization that Harry died and then all the men on the transport that he couldn't save also died is a really hard realization in that sequence. But the one that actually makes me the most upset is seeing Mr. Gower at the bar and he's just like so distraught. I don't know if he's homeless or if he's just like a town drunk or what his life without George is, but that one like really upsets me every time I see it. Oh my god, that one is really sad. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you the one that makes me laugh just to like lighten it up a bit is that Mary is somehow an old maid without George. Like she would have married Sam Wainwright. She would have been rich in somewhere else. Yeah. She wouldn't be an yeah. old maid at the library. Anyway, Absolutely. it's fine. But I agree with both of you. Like Mr. Gower, that one's so sad. And his mom. I mean, that's like the worst. Like your own mom doesn't recognize you. Also played by the amazing Beulah Bondi who played... Jimmy Stewart's mom in four different movies was nominated yeah. twice in Best Supporting Actress. Should have been nominated in 1937 for Make Way for Tomorrow. But anyway, I think that I think she's great in this movie. And 
yeah, I mean, when she doesn't recognize him, she really, I think, plays up her skills that she has as this character actress, for sure. She's also just so mean in that interaction. Like, obviously, she doesn't, it's just a strange man on her doorstep, but she, you know, her only son died as, like, a seven-year-old. She lost her husband. It's so sad. And she lives in Bedford Falls. Well, Pottersville. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so then we have, like, our amazing ending in this movie that is one of my favorite movie endings ever. It's so emotional. When do you start crying? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I have a steady stream of tears the entire movie. I start crying when George breaks down in the bar. I cry again when he's crying on the bridge and he's begging to live again. When he goes home and he grabs the broken part of the staircase railing and kisses it and he's like, <laughs> oh, like this is a, this is real. I'm here. And then he sees Mary. I start crying. There's just like so many different little mm-hmm. components that I think are so beautiful and touching. Just seeing the crowd of people in their home too, surrounding him and like giving anything that they have to help is really moving always. Yeah, I, I love the end of the movie. I think it's so beautiful. I think for me, it starts when the cop comes up to him on the bridge. And then once he gets home, it just continues. Once he sees his kids again and he hugs them and Mary comes home and Mm -hmm. they hug and kiss. Yet kiss is chaotic, by the way. I can understand why he was scared (laughs) to do this. Okay, but all of the kisses in like 40s movies are nuts. They literally like slam into each Mm -hmm. other. It is crazy. (laughs) And then it's... Once Mary opens the door and says everyone is coming and people start unloading money onto this table, it's just like, oh, my God, they all realize who George Bailey is and his impact on them. And then they start singing Old Lang Syne and uh, it, that's, yeah, all of that. Yeah, it's, oh, my God, Mary is a mobilizer. <laughs> like the fact that she was just out, like, <laughs> getting all of these people, and she didn't, like, murder Uncle Billy is amazing. <laughs> yeah, I think for me, I do have a steady stream of tears throughout. I love when the bank examiners, like, rip up the paper and start singing, like, with everyone, or mm-hmm. just, like, whatever, it's over. I love all the people who, like, come up and say, like, individual things, like Annie when she's like, I've been saving this money for divorce if ever I get a husband. <laughs> Amazing. So good. Of course, though, when Harry comes in and you're like, oh, there he is, like hometown hero in his uniform, Harry Bailey. Mm-hmm. And he turns it to be about George. Like the celebration's supposed to be about Harry, but he says to my big brother, George, the richest man in town. Tears really start. But then like what makes me sob is when like when he gets the book and he sees from Clarence like no man is a failure who has friends and we get of course Zuzu saying the most notable quote from the movie every time a bell rings an angel gets his wings when George I'm just start crying right now says add a boy Clarence and winks with the like Jimmy Stewart smile and then he hmm. starts singing it's like oh my god I can't I can't be here anymore <laughs> this movie has to end So we do have some other questions from listeners. Our first question comes from Owen Daly. What other character in a Christmas movie would you like to see get the George Bailey treatment? I would do Clark Griswold. I think that he is someone that just like is at a disconnect with his family in Christmas vacation. He just wants to create this like magical holiday for his family because he loves it so much. And he's just kind of struggling to get his way. 
So I have two people for this. One, I think, like, he definitely gets the George Bailey treatment in a way. But that's Arthur Abbott in The Holiday, the old man who is the screenwriter who won the Oscar, who Kate Winslet befriends. Mm-hmm. Absolutely love him. I mean, he loves Irene Dunn and Barbara Stanwyck. And, like, I would love to go back through his life and, like, learn more about him as, like, a young person. I think that would be fun. The other one is really depressing. And that is that I want Emma Thompson's character in Love Actually to Uh, know how great she is. That's what I was just going to say now. You were? (laughs) Yes. She just, like, makes me so sad in that movie. And I just... Oh my god. Mm -hmm. She just can put on a smile when Alan Rickman has totally destroyed her and she's like willing to be there for her kids. I just want her to know how valuable she is. She is absolutely a George Bailey. Yeah. Georgina Bailey. (laughs) I was going to jokingly say Jim Carrey's the Grinch, (laughs) but that is kind of a George Bailey of sorts. (laughs) But my real answer is just because he's a lovable actor. It's Gus Polinski, who is the guy who took Kate McAllister home to Chicago from Home Alone. Yes, John Candy. Oh, that's a good one. I love that. I would be curious to know his like origin story too, how he mm-hmm. got into polka music. Our next question comes from Manning Franks. Do we think one day It's a Wonderful Life could get a high budget remake or new adaptation of the short story? So not made for TV because we know this has been like spoofed on SNL and all of that. What do you think? I sincerely hope not. <laughs> I I think that it, if it was done very, very well, like maybe... But I don't think we need it. I think some classics are just like too good and shouldn't be touched. But yeah, I also just I can't imagine who would play these characters today. Like I can't think of anybody that could do these roles justice. Maybe it could be like a new spin on the story, but I don't think it should just be like outright remade. Yeah, that's another fun question is who would you have play George Bailey if this were remade today? I was going to say in an ideal world, it would be Tom Hanks, but that doesn't work. Yeah, I think, like, that is the ideal answer if we're making the movie, like, 20 years ago. Like, Tom mm-hmm. Hanks would be perfect. But we just, like, don't have anyone like that right now. Like Oscar Isaac? <sighs> he could be good. I would. I could see him. I don't know. Because he has, like, a kind of a darkness to him, too, like Sophia was saying earlier. But still seems like a good guy. I think Steven Yoon could do it. Ooh. Maybe Ryan Gosling. He does give me Jimmy Stewart vibes in La La Land a little bit. Mm -hmm. I don't know. This is our way of saying don't touch it. Don't do it. Especially (laughs) not with Pete Davidson. Like that rumor. Oh my God. That like sent me into a tailspin. Oh no. Yeah. I guess back to the original question. I think this will absolutely happen. I just hope it's with the right people and at the right time. Yeah. But yeah, I don't want it. It'll just be on Netflix, like that Netflix Rebecca, and people will forget about it in like two weeks. And then with Oscars, so we had mentioned already that it lost all of its nominations. It had five total for picture, director for Capra, actor for Stewart, film editing, and sound recording. And it did win a technical achievement award for developing this new type of snow. Before this, they had used white painted cornflakes. But it was too loud and Capra wanted live sound when they were filming. So the sound team developed this new form of snow, which was a mix of fomite, this fire extinguisher material mixed with soap and water. 
I don't know how this is developed today, but It's a Wonderful Life ended up losing four of these five to the best years of our lives, which we had also discussed before on the pod, and then lost sound recording to the Jolson story, which I haven't seen, but the best years of our lives was also nominated for that and lost. Go listen to our Weiler episode. We talk about the best years of our lives in depth. I think especially if you are a big fan of It's a Wonderful Life and you're like, how could this have lost Best Picture? How did this happen? Definitely give the best years of our lives a chance because it is a phenomenal movie. It really holds up. I think it's a really worthy Oscar winner. So you can like both movies. That's my way of saying that. (laughs) I think ultimately... It's a Wonderful Life ended up losing because of, you know, we mentioned it was a box office flub. Some critics panned it, said it was too sentimental. And it's 1946. World War II has just ended. The best years of our lives is about that. It's about three veterans going home after the war and reintegrating into normal life. So I think all of those reasons is just why, sadly, It's a Wonderful Life lost there. Another question from Manning Franks here. What's another performance by the supporting cast that deserves an Oscar or at least a nomination? I think Lionel Barrymore should have been nominated for playing Mr. Potter. Harold Russell won for the best years of our lives, which is a fun win. I do like that win. But then we have Charles Coburn for The Green Years, William Damaris for The Jolson Story, Claude Rains for Notorious, and Clifton Webb for The Razor's Edge. I think we could have made room for him. I mean, same with Gloria Graham as Violet Bick, really. But I think if I had to pick one, it would be Lionel Barrymore. I would pick Lionel Barrymore, too. I think because Donna Reed would have to be lead, right? She Mm -hmm. couldn't be supporting. Yeah, I would do Lionel Barrymore also. He's just such an iconic villain. Not Uncle Billy or Clarence. (laughs) I thought about saying Clarence, and then I thought Sophia would get too mad. (laughs) No, but you know that Clarence was nominated for Miniver. Oh my god, this is the third time I've mentioned that movie today. I need to be, like, pushed off of this recording. (laughs) I just... I think Clarence is not a tough role to play, necessarily, but I think it's a character that could be so annoying if it fell into the wrong hands, and I just find Clarence so endearing. Mm -hmm. How do you think today's Academy would receive this movie? Honestly, I think five is a lot for a movie like this for today. Again, you know, Christmas movies really don't show up at the Oscars. So for this to get picture and director, that's shocking enough. Like fun novelty movies that may have really good performances never get noticed. And that's kind of how I feel here. And getting technical nominations, like it did very, very well for itself. And I'm glad it did, even if it didn't win. What do you think? I hate to say it, but I really think that Jimmy Stewart would be the only nomination if this movie came out today. I'm so glad it got as many nominations as it did, but I I feel like it would only get Best Actor. Okay, you guys, I'm going back to what I said at the beginning, which is that (laughs) it's not a Christmas movie until it becomes one. And for most of the movie, it's not a Christmas movie. It's an American drama. I think the Academy could go for it. I mean, if they're like, it's a movie that makes you feel things at the end of the day. And that's like, it's well made. Mm -hmm. It's by a big director who's been nominated before. The actor, he's won before. It kind of feels like the Academy would like it. So I love the best years of our lives. And I thought Frederick March was great in the movie. I thought he gave a pretty astonishing performance. There are a couple of scenes in particular where I was amazed by his acting ability. But Jimmy Stewart was robbed in the light of day. 
and should have won this Oscar for Best Actor. This is, like, the signature performance of his career, I think. I mean, we can't, like, go Mm -hmm. back and... That's not how the Oscars work, right? You have to get it right on time. Like, you can't be late. You can't go back and change it, unfortunately. But this performance is just, I mean, the whole entire movie. You believe this character. And I think when the lid blows off of him... That's when he's really getting into... I think he's showing us, like, oh, I'm going to do this in Vertigo later. I'm going to, like, do this in my Hitchcock movies. I am a, I'm an actor capable of firing on all cylinders. And no one else could have had that part. I agree. There are so many layers to his performance. He has to be a loving husband and father. He has to be a really frustrated and stuck businessman, I guess, for lack of a better word. He is definitely a dreamer that isn't really able to act on his dreams. Like, he, there's so many different levels to this character, and I think that he really does just check every box so perfectly. Um, do you think the Academy got it right? Would you have given it best picture over the best years of our lives? Not over that. I mean, maybe today I would, but again, both are wonderful movies. It is really interesting. Looking at AFI's 100 Best American Films... These are both on there, but The Best Years of Our Lives has been stuck at 37 between its two poles, but It's a Wonderful Life ranked higher both times at 11 and 20. So I think it's just interesting that throughout history and for prosperity that this movie will rank higher, will be known for much, much longer as a Christmas movie, and I would have given it something. I mean... It's a shame that critics panned this. I don't know. I I wish that Jimmy Stewart won. I think that a best picture loss is easier to cope with than a best actor loss for this movie. I love this movie so much. I really do. I think it's an American classic. It's a movie I watch every single year, which I can't say about the best years of our lives. But I would vote for the best years of our lives for picture and director. It's just so well made. It's like way ahead of its time. And I think that's what, while It's a Wonderful Life is a classic and is like the classic of the group, I'm just stunned by the fact that The Best Years of Our Lives was made in 1946. It's so bold. Mm -hmm. So I think I would have to go with that. I do think the Academy got that right, at least. And if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be, Isabel? Uh, Definitely best actor for Jimmy Stewart. Same here. Best actor for Jimmy Stewart. Easiest one I think we've maybe ever done. (laughs) (laughs) I third that answer. Yes. Agreed. Okay. That's our celebration of It's a Wonderful Life. Go watch it. It's on Prime right now to stream. Definitely make a point to watch it this holiday season, whether you've already seen it before or if you haven't seen it and you've listened to this whole conversation anyway, check it out. It earned its place in Oscar history and on every list that it's a part of. Yeah, like I said, I try to watch this every year, and I think it's so deserving in that way. And it really is a movie that you can get something new from every time, and I love that. I think those movies are the most special, and especially during the holidays. And for those of you who think, like, maybe it's too sweet for you, maybe it's too warm, I will tell you that even Orson Welles himself said there's no way of hating that movie about this. Amazing. (laughs) It was Capra's favorite movie that he had made also, and it's one of Steven Spielberg's favorite movies of all time. I love it. Okay, are we ready for our mini game? 
Yes. <laughs> I'm so excited. Isabel, what do you have in store for us today? Okay. So as a fan of Christmas movies, as a fan of Oscar movies, I decided to combine them and give them the Hallmark treatment. We love high art and low art on Oscar Wilde, so it's appropriate. <laughs> so I'm going to read the description of a movie that I gave a little Hallmark flair to, and you have to guess which Oscar-nominated film this is. So it just has to have a Christmas scene in it. It doesn't need to be like a Christmas movie like Home Alone. Correct. Okay. Okay, first one. A big city businessman travels back home to a small town and falls in love with a clumsy waitress. The country woman comes into her own when she is whisked back into the big city, but tensions rise between the couple when she struggles to find her place in the new environment. I know this. (laughs) Oh my god. I have no idea. Is this the princess switch? It's Phantom Thread, right? Clumsy waitress? (laughs) I wish The Princess Witch was nominated for an Oscar, though, and I could guess. (laughs) Okay, next one. A young department store clerk is busy for the holiday season, but can't help but be distracted by a beautiful married stranger. Yeah. Easy. Carol. Okay, see, yay, good job. (laughs) Should have been nominated for more. After experiencing tragedy, a suburban boy returns home. With the help of his loving father, he tries to melt the icy heart of his mother, who continues to pretend that everything is okay. (laughs) Oh my god. These are so hard with no context. I know, I'm sorry. (laughs) Did this win like a big Oscar? I think icy heart is the big giveaway, but I don't know. It did, yes. You've talked about it on the pod before. (gasps) Oh! Okay, I'm going to give you a hint, Nick, if I'm right. It's from the 80s. It won Best Picture. Ordinary People. Mm -hmm. That's correct. Oh, I would never have gotten that. I will say this is a little unfair. I think that is, like, of our family, like, the favorite Best Picture winner. (laughs) If you polled us, like, how this rank, it might be number one. Okay, Nick, this next one's for you. A woman moves from her small, quaint hometown to a bustling city for a fresh start where she soon falls in love. But when tragedy strikes her family, she left behind. She's torn between returning home or embracing her new life in the city. This is the one I gave you, right? Mm-hmm. So, Sophia, you have to answer. Well, oh. I was going to say it sounds like something from like the 40s, but if you gave it to her, it's not. <laughs> it literally could have been. <laughs> um, the only modern Christmas movie I can think of is Little Women. Close. You have one of the actors, right? Yeah. Oh. That gives it away. Laura Dern? You can get it. <laughs> this is not marriage story (laughs) oh that would have been a good one but there's no christmas scene in that just halloween i really don't know not ladybird oh oh is there a christmas scene in that brooklyn Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. oh i've only seen that once so i i don't know oh my gosh i love brooklyn i did like it but i i'm definitely due for a rewatch well, that was fun. Thanks, Isabel. You're welcome. Thanks for Come having back. me back. I'll see you in a year. Come back and make up some more games <laughs> soon, please. Yeah. We'll see you next year. Shake a snow globe when you miss me. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, Isabel, for being here. I had a lot of fun discussing this movie today. And I'm very excited for our next episode because we will be doing a year-end wrap-up where we'll be sharing our top five movies of the year talking about them what we love and looking at my list we've only discussed two of them on the pod and we'll have our top five hottest characters which is our annual tradition (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm sure people can predict who will pick. I'm excited for all of our lists. My favorite thing to do at the end of the year. Thank you so much for listening and feel free to rate, review, subscribe. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Oscar Wilde Pod. Thanks for listening and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening. Happy holidays. Thank you.